The Splendid Table is supported by A to Z Wineworks, a B corporation dedicated to combining commerce with conscience, offering ridiculously food-friendly Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay. A to Z Wineworks, the essence of Oregon. And by Applegate. If you consciously choose clean, craveable meat for ethical, environmentally responsible, and delicious reasons, you might be an Applegatarian. And if you like your meat with no added hormones, no antibiotics, and no GMO ingredients, you might be an Applegatarian. Applegate is just clean, natural, organic meat. Go Applegatarian today. For more information on going Applegatarian, visit Applegate.com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So back in early March, I was on the phone one night with a friend, and I'll never forget this call. He, he's a pretty big deal chef in New York City, and he was saying, man, you know, I just spent all day deciding on a terrifying plan, and 12 hours later, I'm deciding on an even more terrifying one. He was trying at the time to figure out how he could, you know, keep his staff safe and his business solvent. And then a week later, COVID-19 brought the entire restaurant industry to a standstill. It's been months and still no one knows what the future will hold for restaurants. No one thinks it's really a great one. But what's the present like even? Today we talked to two people with a view into things. One is my friend Hugh Atchison. He's a chef in Georgia where the governor has declared that businesses should reopen, but where it's up to those businesses to figure out how to do that safely. And we start by talking with Soleil Ho, the restaurant critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, who's been covering how restaurants and their workers have been trying to get by. Hey, Soleil, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I am recording in my car currently, and actually, my street is a 30-degree incline, so I'm kind of wrapped around my backseat like a monkey. (laughs) great uh why are you in your car i mean the the uh, the visual is phenomenal this is the best way to start an interview i've ever had but um well you know we're all stuck at home and my apartment building is under construction so Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is my literal mobile studio (laughs) okay well keep the parking brake on and uh if you're in your car i imagine it means your windows are rolled up i don't want you to you know be medium rare by the time this thing is over but (laughs) first let me say then Aside from, you know, stay cool. First, let me say, you know, congratulations on your Beard Award nomination for Restaurant Criticism. First year on the job, really coming out swinging. Thank you. But, you know, obviously it's been a little while now since you've had really restaurants to review. And, you know, I know right away you turned away from criticism and towards reporting on what's been going on in the restaurant industry, what's going on with workers, with owners, you know, will it survive? And obviously right now there's no, like, next to no dine-in restaurants, you know, operating almost nationwide. Are you at home, like, mostly cooking for yourself? Are you doing all takeout all the time? What's going on with your eating? Yeah, it's really, it's weird, right? Because at first I was doing a lot of cooking because I like everyone else, I was worried about what was going on. Nobody knew what was happening and you just wanted to buy a lot of you know, oatmeal and toilet paper and just like make sure everything was fine before, you know, you took stock of other things. So it's been nice, actually, because in the course of my normal job, I don't really cook a lot. I don't really get to 
make dinner because I'm always out like every mm-hmm. night. Um, so in that way, that was the bright side, you know, just reconnecting with my culinary um, talents. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. as time went on, you know, and the idea of, okay, how do we keep restaurants going? How do we let them survive beyond this? And a lot of times, at least on the consumer level, right, you just have to support them. You you call up your favorite restaurant and you ask, are you still open? Like, can I order something? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you do, right? So my coverage has shifted because more people want to know who's open, who's doing takeout well. Um, and there are a lot of other chefs and restaurant folks, sommeliers, servers, etc., who, because they're laid off, because, you know, they don't have work, they've been doing other things, other projects that I find really interesting. Mm. Like, there are three Singaporean cooks who normally work at a steakhouse in San Francisco who've started their own pop-up, and they just deliver laksa oh, wow. uh, to places in the Bay Area, which is really cool. And then there's this guy who's a chef um, normally, and now he's just baking pies, you know? <laughs> um, so to me, those are really interesting stories, too, that have come out of this. Yeah. So, yes, I'm eating a lot of laksa and pie and other things. <laughs> As a critic, though, you know, and, you know, on one hand, you're a restaurant critic, right? So on some level, you are a, you know, you're an advocate for the consumer. You're theoretically not supposed to be um, an advocate for the restaurant industry, right? If, if you think about it in those terms, which I don't think you actually do. But, um, <laughs> but, but some people view the role of a restaurant critic that way. How did you feel when you decided you were going to start in some fashion reviewing takeout from restaurants that, you know, didn't do takeout before? Well, it's it's complicated, right? Because generally speaking, I think most people understand that takeout is an inferior product to actually eating food that's super fresh. Like think about sushi, for sure. instance. Um, you want to have it as soon as the chef slaps that fish on that rice right because that is like the peak of when you can eat it right Mm -hmm. um and at the same time actually evaluating things right if i were to apply like the star system for instance to takeout i think that would be grossly unfair sure especially now because because of social distancing requirements right and because of all of these other things that are laid on top of an already stressful situation of making food you know, people are having to wear masks. People are, you know, worried about loved ones at home mm-hmm, or they're mm-hmm. having a hard time getting to work even. You know, um, the the whole the task of making food has become so much more challenging. And, you know, there are so many extenuating circumstances that you know, make any sort of like pizza that you get at home just that much more valuable and that much more difficult mm. as a proposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so at the same time, you know, these are services that are really important to talk about because, you know, people, non-restaurant people, right, they they want food, they want to eat something wonderful um, that brings them somewhere else because mm-hmm. right now the here is just so deeply unpleasant. Sure. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and so in, in that way, I think it remains service journalism. It remains a service for people who, you know, wants something beautiful, something different. And I think bringing people that is still an important part of my job. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> to be frank, like, I love this idea, you said, of, you know, people are still ordering takeout because they do want to feel a sense of escape, 
um, from from the present moment. And like literally just like just so they don't have to make it themselves, you know, like dinner on the table every single night, 60 days in a row is like, that's a real thing. Um, right. But like, okay, let's. But I mean, let's, I don't know about you, but I have tons of dishes still like in my <laughs> sink, like constantly now. Well, let me switch over to um, sort of your other hat um, as a reporter. I want to hear in your reporting, in your interviews with restaurant workers and you know restaurant owners, for the places that have switched over to doing delivery and takeout. You wrote a great piece about the moral quandary of that, but for the places that have done that as a means of survival. Have you seen anything that looks like a successful model? And obviously successful in this case just means like can keep the place in business, not, you know, anyone's getting rich off of it. Right. I mean, very, very, very few people are actually doing well and actually in the black. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, For a lot of these places doing takeout or working with, you know, programs that are offering food to frontline workers, um, they're making... They're taking in money, um, but it's enough to maybe bring on a couple staff back um, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe pay a little bit of their utilities, their rent, their vendors, like that sort of thing. Because people don't realize, right, there's so many other costs on top of, you know, um, the price of food that mm-hmm. go into restaurants. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, there there are some programs that I think are really interesting, like the San Francisco New Deal, for instance, is one that cropped up in the midst of COVID-19 to connect restaurants with um, senior housing, right? Um, people who are experiencing homelessness, mm. sort of, you know, the, these programs that are providing food for people who face food insecurity here in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, so these restaurants are hiring on people and making food, you know, keeping those kitchens warm for people who can't afford food. And they're being paid um, either by private donors or, you know, civic funds to do this work. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it fills that hole of like normal customers coming into the restaurant. But at the same time, that's not that doesn't mean like they're buying alcohol or they're tipping or any of that stuff either. Right. Are there places that look like oh, wow, we've figured out a way to do more than just, you know, really bare bones, keep the lights on. Um, is there anything that you see as being something that we'll continue to see in like a positive future? You know, I think there's some really interesting case studies in San Francisco in particular. Um, I think that, for instance, there's there's a few restaurants like Prairie, um, Verju that have become, you know, grocery stores in, in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, and those have been really great for their neighborhoods um, just because they help address the fact that grocery stores are completely, you know, ransacked and just, you know, total messes generally. <laughs> I haven't been to a grocery store in a while. Um, I just go to my, like, the local restaurants, the wine shops that are offering bread and flour and bacon basics, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I just cover it that way. Um So I think that might actually be a model for later. There's actually an Oakland caterer named Moni Fadayo who 
went back into the kind of pop-up business when COVID-19 hit. And, you know, she's been offering food, like West African dishes for her community and selling components, too, for people who can't afford the whole dish. They can have, like, mm. peanut sauce instead. Um, and I think that sort of broken down aspect of retail is probably going to be part of the future, too, where chefs and restaurateurs and other food folks just sell little bits like jams and flowers and that sort of thing. Sourdough starter is really huge out here, too. <laughs> well, it's San Francisco. It's literally in the air. Right. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people are Johnny come late to this. And so they need a little help. We're talking to Soleil Ho. She's the restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, and we'll be back with her to hear about some of the positive things that are happening in the restaurant world. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's newest non-dairy frozen desserts are made with sunflower butter, a new twist on vegan euphoria. Everyone deserves a little ice cream, even people who avoid cream. For years, Ben & Jerry's has been making non-dairy frozen desserts based on almond milk, but the three newest non-dairy flavors, milk and cookies, mint chocolate cookie, and creme brulee cookie, are all made with sunflower butter. It's based on seeds, not nuts or soy, and it's really impressive how they nailed the mouthfeel. It's creamy without, you know, honestly without the weird greasy vibe you sometimes get from other non-dairy ice creams. You add to that all the chunks and swirls you love from Ben & Jerry's, like salted caramel and brown sugar cookies and the creme brulee cookie flavor, and this gets serious. Check out the Ben & Jerry's Sunflower Butter lineup and the whole non-dairy family at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. And by Snake River Farms. Santa Maria-style barbecue is a classic of California cooking. It's hot buttered French bread, pinquito beans, salsa, and a whole grilled tri-tip steak. And if you want to throw a Santa Maria barbecue yourself, do it with a Snake River Farms American Wagyu tri-tip. At two and a half pounds, it's big enough to feed a family, but still a fun size to cook. You can get a great charred crust on the grill and then cook it gently on indirect heat until it's how you want it. Like all their American Wagyu beef, Snake River Farms tri-tip has crazy marbling. It's well above USDA Prime. And it's a cross of purebred Japanese Wagyu and high-quality American cattle breeds. They also offer classic steakhouse cuts like longbone tomahawk ribeyes and bone-in cowboy steaks. And Snake River Farms is served by chefs who really know beef, like Thomas Keller and Wolfgang Puck. And right now, Splendid Table listeners can get 10% off their order. Just go to www.snakeriverfarms.com and enter promo code SPLENDID at checkout. That's 10% off your order using code SPLENDID at checkout at www.snakeriverfarms.com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table. So we've been talking to Soleil Ho. She's the restaurant critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, who literally switched overnight from critiquing restaurants to reporting on how the industry and its people are trying to get by. We're continuing our conversation about what else she's seeing out there. I do want to talk about the restaurants now converting to delivery and takeout. I mean, that's a steep learning curve for a lot of places, right? Like, if you're just not used to it, it's a totally different game from how do you package, how do you price, how do you produce the food, how do you do a menu that can survive a 30-minute sit in a box, you know? Like, that food is meant to be eaten fresh, like you said before. Um, what separates the, the places that are 
getting by this way to some degree in the places that it's just not working for them at all? Well, you know, what I'm seeing actually, and, you know, just even from my email inbox, it's the places that have PR folks working for them, you know, public relations people, and people who have already really big Instagram followings, um, who are having an easier time of it, at least. You know, they they can send out the releases every time they change the menu, Mm -hmm. or open up more, you know, slots for delivery. They can just publicize everything really quickly, whereas... The ones who aren't as internet savvy, right? Like your typical immigrant-owned restaurant isn't Mm. necessarily going to have an updated Facebook page or Instagram or whatever. Like they're the ones who people forget. And I think like they're the ones who kind of get stuck on the DoorDashes, the Caviars, because that's the way to get their name out. Um, But the exchange is that they have to pay in and, you know, pay a fee, a percentage on top of what they're making on actual orders, you know, for that publicity. Yeah. So, you know, there's, you know, Instagram is free, but at the same time, like, uh, it's not actually accessible to every single yeah, for person. Sure. You got to know how to use it. You got to know what the audience is there. You got to build an audience. Yeah. And what's funny is I think we've kind of forgotten as a culture that you can literally call a restaurant yeah, totally. that is on your street and ask them, like, are you open? Yeah. Can I order from you? I mean, if a restaurant is doing well in good times, they make a 10% profit margin, right? And these apps are charging 20, in some cases, 30% of the order to the restaurant. Yeah. You know, in California, there are caps on those fees. I think it's 15% generally, but it's temporary, you know, Mm -hmm. just for the extent of shelter in place. And I think uh, maybe it'll stick, but I know those companies are lobbying really hard to get them out of here yeah hey so in your reporting as you've been talking to restaurant owners and restaurant workers what's the thing that they want to talk to you about like what's the thing you hear most from people in the industry so what i'm hearing a lot from restaurant workers and restaurant owners and catering workers you know like people across food businesses is that undocumented workers are the foundation of the food industry from Every step of, you know, on every step of the chain, Um, you know, that's people who work in slaughterhouses, people who work in fields, people Mm. who work in restaurants. They're the ones who are not being taken care of. They're they're the ones who don't actually qualify for unemployment insurance, which is a huge thing, right? Because there's so many layoffs. And a huge number of the jobs that we've lost, according to the National uh, Labor Board of Statistics, is in the food industry. Yeah. And that number doesn't include undocumented workers because they're not able to, you know, register. They're not able to get those benefits, even though they pay into those benefits. Right. Um, and so that's also a huge reason why restaurant tours are, you know, really feeling a lot of angst. Like they could close. Many of them have temporarily. But that also means those folks that they've depended on, you know, their coworkers, their colleagues, their friends have no work. They have no options. And I think that's why you see all these GoFundMes and why these places are open, you know, from the beginning, because that was one way to take care of people, to fill in that gap that, you know, the, the government just doesn't have the willingness or ability to fill. Oh. <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the restaurants I've worked in. You know, all the chefs I've known who say, you know, 
you can look at me as the chef, you can, you know, look at the sous chef, but like really the most important person in this entire building is the dishwasher, right? If the dishwasher goes down, if I have to clock out, someone else can take my job. If the dishwasher goes down, the entire place falls apart, you know? And that dishwasher in many, many cases is an undocumented worker or a recent immigrant. And I guess I want to ask you if you've heard anything about how some of these folks are getting by, but I don't even know how to even ask that question in a way that's answerable. No, it's 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 hard because I've certainly in the course of my reporting, I've tried really hard to find sources who are undocumented to talk to them. And as any reporter can tell you, like getting those sources and gaining their trust is really, really hard because they stand to lose a ton from talking to anybody. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are afraid if they go to the hospital, that's ICE will be waiting for them. Um, and, you know, I think from what I'm hearing, folks are relying on the sort of food banks, the food pantries that aren't taking ID. You know, they don't worry about who's showing up and mm-hmm. who they are, um, relying on churches, for instance, and neighborhood organizations, but they're not going to pay the rent for them. Right. And I think that remains a really tough proposition. So they're taking, you know, the work that they can, um, at these restaurants that are open because, you know, restaurants have always been safe havens for folks like this. Um, but yeah, like it, I think a lot of people are like just picking up and going anywhere else, you know, like, like any sort of economic migration. Um, they're just trying to find opportunity where they can. And right now it's, I don't even know where that is. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I know you've also found efforts and initiatives and just situations and stories of people coming together and helping each other out. What are some things you've seen that do feel like we can be hopeful right now? You know, on a basic like human nature level, um, I have heard so many stories from restaurant workers and I've done a little bit of interviewing with them for other stories at the Chronicle that, you know, they rely on each other mm-hmm. a lot of times. Like, there's been this really interesting informal bartering, you know, um, where people practice gift economy. And mm. they, you know, I've talked to a sommelier who would give, like, lessons in how to apply for unemployment, you know, which is a mm. huge, it's a really important skill yeah, to sure. be able to read a forum and understand it. Um, and people will give her like jam that they've made or like fresh berries that they picked from their backyard, like that sort of thing, you know? Mm. Um, I think those are wonderful stories that just people aren't forgetting each other even through this. I think that's amazing. Um, and just the fact that, you know, so many people have been emailing me and asking me like, how do we help? How do we help restaurants? It's constantly, um, I don't have the solution, right? Because at the end, end of the day, it's beyond what an individual can do. Um, (laughs) I think there are a lot of really big picture things that need to change so restaurants can be taken care of and the the people who work for them can be taken care of. But the fact of the matter is like those sentiments really make me feel better, you know, that people aren't forgetting about them, that they really care and they're, they're trying so hard to figure it out. Like in... At the beginning of Shelter in Place, there were so many huge initiatives, not huge, but really interesting crowdsourced 
things, directories of places that are offering takeout, of places in Chinatown that were still mm-hmm. open, of places that were selling gift cards. Like so many people were making Excel spreadsheets, right? Um, making websites, making apps, like all of that sort of thing, just because they had so much passion and so much desire to see these places thrive that they just wanted to make something, right? Do something. And I found that really encouraging. Yeah. And people are still sharing them and talking about ways they can support restaurants. And people are still sending me their ethical questions, which, you know, I delight in generally anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that effort, at least among the restaurant community, has rolled into these really interesting nationwide coalitions. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a Bay Area Hospitality Coalition. There's a Chicago Coalition. There's a New Orleans Hospitality Coalition. And then there's that nationwide independent restaurants coalition, right? And they've all come out of this based on the sentiment that independent restaurants, you know, family-owned restaurants aren't really given a voice at the government level. And they've actually turned that into political action, which, at at least in my lifetime, I've never seen restaurateurs, like, actually united um, to talk about anything beyond, like, wage, you know, healthcare tax sort of stuff. Like, this is big political movement. And I find that really encouraging. Yeah. Well, you know, a few weeks ago, we interviewed a guest who, you know, was in a tough place. She can't get into her bakery. But she did, you know, say, we got to keep the posy vibes going. So in the spirit of that, (laughs) let me ask you this. What was the best thing that happened to you this week? (laughs) Um, So I bought a um, a mushroom farm, actually four of them, um, Very nice. from this company called Far West Fungi, which is based here in the Bay Area. <laughs> and I've just slowly been watching my shiitake mushrooms grow bigger and bigger every day. <laughs> and it's just something about the persistence of life, you know, um, and watching these things, which I really just don't, I, I don't know if I take good care of them. I just look at them and I marvel. <laughs> Um, and one day you will cut them down and eat them. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be delicious. I can't wait. <laughs> but it's just seeing these things thrive and just be alive um, has been wonderful. Yeah, I love that. Soleil, thank you so much for joining us. I hope it's not too hot in your car. Open the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. All thank right. you for having me. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Salejo is the restaurant critic of the San Francisco Chronicle and was recently nominated for a James Beard Award for her work. So after talking with Soleil and getting her, you know, her thousand foot view of the restaurant world right now, we wanted to get in a little deeper with someone who's still working in restaurants. The chef Hugh Atchison is a good friend of mine. We met years ago while filming a season of Top Chef Masters and we spent three weeks rolling around Los Angeles, bonding over how much we loved restaurants while we waited for our time on set. I've edited four of his cookbooks, and he's just a great, thoughtful, level-headed guy. His restaurants are in Athens and Atlanta, Georgia, and we're catching up with him to see how he's trying to come back. And a little later, we'll take some of your home cooking questions. Hey, Hugh. Thanks for uh, taking some time from... Uh... You know, it's weird for a chef with restaurants that aren't actually in operation you're like the busiest person i know (laughs) so thanks for taking some time with us today busy in a very different way than normal but yes very busy okay so let's start with this right your restaurants are in georgia 
which is a state where the governor has said, okay, everyone reopened now. But you have been, you know, I think really very vocal in talking about not wanting to rush back and pretend everything is normal. So what are you doing in your restaurants? You know, it's, we shuttered them on the Ides of March and which seemed prophetic in some weird way. Um, <laughs> and we recalibrated pretty quickly to do uh, pretty extravagant to go stuff, but that was a paltry amount of monetizing and, then we successfully got PPP loans and things like that. So, you know, we're in a good trajectory. But really, about a month ago, we started doing a full-on meal service at two of the restaurants for uh, in-need communities and medical practitioners and hospitals and different community mm. organizations through World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres' group. So pivoted towards that. But then also just now uh, sort of micromanaging a bunch of different teams to to assess skill sets and say, you know, you're on team uh, rebuilding and refinishing tables. You're on team painting and uh, refurbishing equipment. Uh, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. And I need PR. I need COVID-19 plans. I need you know, new service standards. So we're all busy, but we're all just busy in different ways. Yeah. Um, have that combination of you know, doing the World Central Kitchen program and like some takeout and delivery, like you said, has that been has that been working enough for you as an operator? It's enough for the time being. I mean, we we yeah. we a lot of places decided to sell merch and sell a lot of to-go food and, and some have been more successful than others. You know, we've still got some people who really want great nourishing to-go food and we can, we can still do that, but it's still a paltry amount compared to our regular sales. Um, what's most intriguing to us is how do we slowly reactivate the restaurants and slowly get them back into situations where we can provide a service. And right now, you know, uh, even today, Danny Meyer announced that he's not opening and uh, most of his fine dining places until there's a vaccine. And I mean, unfortunately that, that could be years away. So uh, right. my response is if this is the new normal, how do we ensure safety to the best of our ability and really map out HACCP plans to make this acceptable? Then how can I assure my 65 year old clients that we are doing everything within our ability to keep them distance and safe and production of food is really in a safe environment. And so we're working through protocols on that. And so it's, you know, to me, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's good triaging and good response to a real endemic problem that we have right now. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's what chefs are really good at. Yeah. But okay. So how are you doing that? Like how, how do you actually develop these plans and how do you get the operations under your belt so that you will be able to serve customers safely? Like, what does that even mean? What does it look I like? I mean, obviously we've put into place a lot of protocols just in production of the World Central Kitchen meals that we do every day. So we're all okay. wearing masks. We're all changing gloves. We're logging temperatures as people come into the restaurant who work there. Um, deliveries are dropped outside and our staff access it from there. So uh, all these points of contact uh, where, you know, in fine dining, there's going to be a thousand points of contact in a meal. Um, so we're just working through all those. We actually did do a dinner for 10 people on this past Saturday and it was people who have been hanging hmm. out together. So they felt safe and we could do it in one room and there was nobody else in the restaurant except for my staff. And, you know, we had rules that the customers had to follow upon entry into the restaurant. Um, their hands had to be clean. They needed to go wash their hands. Uh, we would clinicize the bathroom after each uh, person had 
been in and out of there. Uh, they, oh, wow. they were wearing masks until they get to the table. The only time the mask should really be removed is if we are far away from the scenario where they are eating or drinking. Uh, when we approach, we ask them to put their masks back on. Um, but, you know, okay. you, you immediately figure out hot spots, um, you know, vector points that you really want to hone in on and figure out. Um, a dishwashing area is a, a huge vector because, you know, there's, there's stuff on plates and there's people have touched that cutlery and there's saliva and stuff like this that you know normally uh we obviously mitigate risk in a restaurant environment every day but not it's not as tantamount as it is right now so we have huge massive what are called lexans and they're very deep big plastic containers that look like massive bus tubs um and we're filling those with quat water so quat's a disinfectant like a bleach and dilution is the proper ratio those are dropped in there there's one dishwasher who's in charge of dirty and there's one dishwasher in charge of clean so the dirty guy is the person who touches the machine and he opens it for the other guy to lift everything out of so there's just this separation and number of sequences involved but it, it it terrifies me to think that a lot of restaurants in my state and now around the country are reopening without having really analyzed every step and every concern in this you know i tasked my 17 year old daughter to be the bathroom attendant the other day during this dinner and she stood outside the bathroom gloved up and watched where people would rub against a wall and touch the doorknob and she would go in after they had exited and sanitize all those contact points. And, Mm. you know, but we have to do this every single time. So we take, you know, in writing these plans, a lot of the really good plans that we're seeing are coming out of Hong Kong, places like uh, this restaurant in Hong Kong called Black Sheep. uh, And then Yardbird is doing some really good plans and they've kind of open sourced them, allowed them to be downloaded as PDFs. And they're really, really amazing uh, looks at how do we mitigate risk. And, but then we run into what's liability, what's the liability involved? You know, if I open up too quickly and I don't take the proper precautions and a bunch of people get sick in a restaurant that I run, um, to me, in all honesty, I think I should be liable for some of that. I mean, I don't want to you know, ruin my relationship with my insurance company right now, but <laughs> or every other restaurateur in the country. But. Yeah, it's so. You know, you've you've got to be making sure that you first and foremost are thinking about your staff and their safety. Then you're thinking about yourself and your family and the situation we're all putting ourselves in if we're cooking every day uh, in a restaurant, doing full service. And then you also need to to prove to your clientele that you're doing everything uh, with your your possible trying to to ensure their, their safety. But the other thing is I don't want to walk into some sort of um, clinicized hygienic alarmist situation because eating out and being served food is being in, in a place of respite. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, so I'm working on plans where we can assure you that we're doing all the steps that are necessary without it being red tape marking off half the restaurant as you can't sit here. So, you know, we're also... We've got pretty large footprints in the restaurants, so we're lucky uh, because I can spread out tables more than a lot of people can. I can really reclaim a lot of outdoor area and put down tables out there, and I think that'll be where people really first want to go and eat. Um, and but we're going to do this slowly. There's no rush yeah. to this, you know. We've, you know, the economic reality is yes. I mean, 
myself and everybody around me are sometimes having trouble paying bills these days. Um, and I feel for them, but you know, there is no bill that is worth risking your own life and everybody around you. We're talking to Hugh Atchison, chef and owner of Five and Ten in Athens, and Empire State South, and By George restaurants in Atlanta. And we'll be back with him in a minute. He's sticking around to take some of your cooking questions. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card, and that's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud. They send an alert to your phone and help you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money, even when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table. And we're back with Chef Hugh Atchison. If you have a question you'd like for us to answer on another episode, we have great guests coming up like Yotam Odolenghi. Record them as a voice memo on your phone and email them, contact at splendidtable.org. All right, let's get to your questions. One of the things I've always loved about you is that you are a chef who truly loves home cooking and loves to help people with their home cooking. So we do have a bunch of listener calls. We've been getting listener calls for well, months now, um, people with lots of questions about what to do with this, what to do with that, and I was hoping you'd take some of them with me. Sure, as long as there are no sourdough starter questions. <laughs> you have to have rules. Okay, we, we, we will strike all the sourdough starter questions. Um, I know you lived in San Francisco for a while. Maybe it's a little PTSD. Uh, we'll actually go further west than that. We're going to start in Alaska with Kathy. Hi, Splendid Table. This is Kathy calling from Anchorage, Alaska, and I have a hunk of frozen halibut I'd like to use up, but don't really want to fry it. I've got a bunch of root vegetables. I've got turnips and carrots, uh, some onions, potatoes. Um, I've got a hunk of ginger and some garlic, and I'm wondering if you have some suggestions about a new way to prepare halibut with these root vegetables. Thanks. I love Alaska so much, and I kind of am really jealous of Kathy. Um, I think you and I can assume the halibut is going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I would assume it's great. And uh, it's probably frozen at sea type of stuff. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing with frozen fish is how you're thawing it hmm. and what freezing does to food. Um, freezing sort of breaks down shell structure a little bit. It also adds a lot of moisture into the food as it's thawing. So you need to really be making sure that you're thawing it and then patting it dry with paper towels really well. Then you're going to okay. season it up. And to me, I just simply get a pan on the stove with a good amount of um, you know, canola oil or grapeseed oil, something that's got a relatively high smoke point on it. And not too much. I mean, you know, a tablespoon is going to be fine. And as long as that fish is dry and the pan is really clean, you're not going to get that adhering. And as long as the, the pan is really pretty hot once you enter that fish into it. And you're going to crisp that off. And then maybe you've got two pieces of the halibut in there. And then, you know, maybe you've made a simple dashi broth and you've roasted some root vegetables and you put those nicely around in a deep bowl. And then you're going to turn that halibut when it's nice and golden brown on one side and then introduce some butter and fresh thyme. And then you're going to baste it, you know, taking a nice bigger spoon, not a huge one, but like something that you'd eat 
a big bowl of cereal like who had a huge mouth. Yeah. Um, and you're going to base that over. And you're looking to get an internal temperature of around 132 for something like halibut Fahrenheit. Um, you're going <laughs> to rent. 132? Well, 130. <laughs> you know, for, you want like mi-kui salmon as 122. Then we're going to add 10 degrees to that because halibut should be fully cooked but not desiccated. Um and then, you know, you <laughs> nestle that into your broth of like dashi broth. And she said she had, Kathy said she had ginger and a bunch of root vegetables. So you can do a lot of just diced up, beautiful roasted root vegetables. And you've got a wonderful meal. I mean, she said she yeah. didn't want to deep fry, but I am a big fan of fish and chips as well. So, you know, don't be scared of the fish and chips, but there's so many ways to cook fish. So, yeah. you know, and the broth type of thing, you could poach the fish, but I love halibut for its ability to get that real golden, beautiful, natural crust with really nothing on it. There's no flour yeah. on it. There's no batter on it. It's just straight up beautiful fish. Yeah. I mean, I love halibut. I cooked for a while in the Northwest and in, in Portland, Oregon, and, um, you know, we would see incredible halibut, from, halibut coming from Alaska. And, and, and halibut is a great fish because it's, you know, it's a white fish. It's a big white fish. So it's like the muscle structure can be like pretty meaty, but it can also be really delicate depending on how you cook it. So when she was saying she had these root vegetables and she had this beautiful halibut, like I was thinking also because I'm lazy and don't want to sit there and see her fish at home necessarily. Um, also because I don't have a fan in my kitchen. You, <laughs> like, I don't you really New Yorkers. Have. So it's like either you open the windows uh, or you're just going to have to live with the, the memory of that fish for two days. Um, so I was thinking, yeah, I, I would actually, a very similar final result without like the finesse of what you just described. But I was thinking what you might do is take some stock, um, uh, chicken stock, vegetable stock. I mean, I'm actually pretty indiscriminate when it comes to stock, to be completely honest. I don't really care what the stock is. As long as it has some kind of flavor, it's and a decent flavor. It'll be nice. And I was thinking, oh, she can take those root vegetables, simmer them in the stock, maybe also with some onion, some aromatic things like scallions, some of that ginger and garlic for sure. And until those root vegetables are cooked, not like falling apart, you know, just like nice and cooked. And then, like you said, pat that halibut dry, season it up with salt and pepper, and then just kind of poach it in that broth and, you know, barely have a bubble in the broth. But, but America, yeah, I think that America just needs to understand that um, poaching is like a warm jacuzzi of flavor yeah. for something. It's not a rapid boil. It's like when you stick your foot in the hot jacuzzi hot tub thing and you're like ooh, that's what it should be it should be hovering around 175 but whatever you're dropping into it's going to drop that temperature fairly quickly but then you just want to get an internal thermometer and make sure that you bring it up to the right temperature inside poaching doesn't take long it's so easy i love like vermouth uh, mm. like a dry vermouth with stock as a cooking medium don't be shy of like adding a fair bit of butter to your poaching liquid because that can just enrich it even more. You could add miso as well to yeah, that. Just stir it in at the end. Yeah, yeah, or you could add some a little bit of you know crushed chilies or and then make like a pesto or something like that on top um, really easily with the abundance of fresh mint and stuff like that. Yeah, there's so many. You know, this is the time for fresh herbs and things like that. And I, I think that if Americans uh, can't make like a really simple mint pesto uh, because mint's a perennial weed essentially that, that if you can't grow mint you should move to a condo um, because you have no reason to have a yard <laughs> I guess we never said you were judgment free just that you would try to be helpful <laughs> yes I am very helpful but I am judgy <laughs> 
All right, let's go to Nicole. This is Nicole calling from Ardmore. Due to the coronavirus, I have been in my home for quite some time and thought it might be fun to try pickling. I have a lot of different types of vegetables that I'm working with coming through my CSA and wondered what advice you could provide. Thank you. So she, so Nicole has lots of different kinds of vegetables and she wants to play with pickling. Now, I, I know you love to pickle. You are a pickling sort of dude. We, uh, we do love to pickle. Um, and pickling's easy. I mean, this is the time of year where you've got, you know, beautiful beets and carrots and all these things coming out of the ground. You just have to understand what a brine is doing and what you want. And it, it, a brine's like a basic vinaigrette. You can add really any flavor mm. to the vine from that point to maximize flavor um, and, and whatever you want to add to it. So if you want to make a turmeric brine, that's great. But you're still... Wait, so let's start with a basic brine. Like what would you do? Like a very simple, like the base would be, what would you do? I do a uh, one-to-one ratio of water to apple cider vinegar. And this is for okay. a fridge pickle. So, you know, the difference yeah. between shelf stability is you want to retain the acidic uh, quotient to it. But in a simple one like this, uh, we can, because it's going to be stored in the fridge and be good for two to three weeks, um, you don't have to think about shelf stability. So from that point, I would add a scant amount of salt. I wouldn't add sugar depending on the type of pickle you're going for. If you're going for a bread and butter pickle, you're definitely going to use mustard and a dried mustard powder and sugar um, and a lot of you know onions and celery leaves and fennel seed. Um, in a simple brine of just apple cider and water and salt, that's a basic brine right there. So you can then add ginger if you're making carrots because ginger and carrots have an affinity and go together really well if i was doing cauliflower i would uh, cut florets of cauliflower put them in a clean jar get my brine going and add turmeric to it because i love turmeric and cauliflower together so i'd pour that turmeric brine over that seal the top hot brine or cold brine i would do hot brine because that in that case it's going over raw cauliflower and that hot brine is literally going to cook perfectly the cauliflower Yet still okay. retaining so you some. Bring crimpers. it to a boil and then dump it in. Yeah, I pour it in. I tend not to say dump, Francis. <laughs> Got to keep you, it classy. God, you, you you live and breathe finesse. Yes. <laughs> okay, so your simple brine is one to one apple cider vinegar and water. Um, if you want to add a little bit of salt, if you want to add other seasonings, go in you know to your heart's content. You cut the vegetables up, put them in a jar, bring it to a boil. Pour gently and with great finesse that brine in the jar, and then that's it. And that can go in the fridge, and that's pretty much three weeks of pickles. Yeah, and and but pickling was really meant to uh, to harness um, a moment in a season. And so right now it's uh, you know you can walk into the woods in Georgia and pull out ten pounds of ramps. And so pickling ramps in that simple. Uh, type of brine is great because you're going to preserve that unique flavor that happens in April and May um, and never happens again for the rest of the year. And then you can pull into them over the course of the next while. If you want a hot can or pressure can, you can. That um, you just need to then understand the acid and pH level of whatever you're canning because there are going to be some things that you're going to need to pressure can or that you can just do it in a hot water bath and a canning setup to fully make them shelf stable. Yeah. And that stuff you should look up in a book rather than take your advice from 
a guy mouthing off in the radio. Or go to the Ball Ball Jar uh, site is great. Uh, also, the University of Georgia has the uh, is the center for home canning, uh, in and writes all the rules for oh, that. So you can go to their website. That's awesome. Bless them. Okay. Okay. Let's take another question. Uh, we're going to go to Hannah in North Carolina. Hi, Francis. My name is Hannah, and I'm calling from North Carolina. I am a longtime listener. I actually grew up listening to the Splendid Table with my mom mm. um, on our local station, WUNC. Oh, that's uh, awesome. And so as an adult, I've been really excited to get to listen to Francis every week. Um, that's super sweet. My question is a little bit mundane, maybe. But uh, the other week I was at the grocery store and I bought uh, shallots because there weren't very many onions. And mm -hmm. I've always bought shallots and used them when recipes call for them. But my question is, okay. uh, what's, what's the deal with shallots? Um, how are they different <laughs> from onions? How do you cook different from them? Um, does it even matter? Um, thanks. Hugh, I know you're, as a chef, you are a little bit of a francophile at heart. So... The difference between shallots and other forms of onions is meaningful to you, I think, probably in a particular way. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, onions, I mean, I live now, you know, right, you know, an hour and a half away from the sweet onion capital of Georgia or the States, which is Vidalia. So I've learned to love onions, but in the Allium family, there are leeks and there is garlic, there are onions, there are tons of different types of onions and then you come to these little pearl onions and then you go to this fine and more delicate and tender flavor of the shallot and I think the nice thing about a shallot is because the structure of it and how it, the individual petals of it uh, are shaped it's actually it's great for really finely finely dicing you get really beautiful huh. clean cuts which you wouldn't be able to get with an onion just because the petals of an onion are much thicker um so you oh, could but I never thought about this. yeah so you know they're beautiful to sweat down and butter and to really start something i make a, our most commonly used uh, vinaigrette at the restaurant is something i borrowed from gary danko and when we say borrow i meant i uh, i i I, you stole. I stole. I'll say for you. I worked. <laughs> I worked really hard there and cried a lot. Um, but I did take the vinaigrette recipe, and it's a minced shallots and beaten up uh, fresh thyme to really release all the natural oils, and lemon juice and champagne vinegar and olive oil and a little bit of salt, and you let that macerate, and those shallots just flavor the entire vinaigrette beautifully and then you vigorously strain it out through a fine chinois or a china cap or a strainer and then uh, you've got this amazingly full flavored vinaigrette that tastes so redolent of shallot but shallot to me like when you say the smell uh that is your most favorite in the culinary world everybody's always like well it's bacon or it's onions cooking in butter and to me it's actually shallots cooking in unsalted butter is just like that beautiful beautiful aroma coming through so shallots are great you know you just don't find them as commonly at the at the store but you know even the local grocery store here in athens georgia which is probably not the gastronomic capital of the world has shallots all the time so you can definitely yeah. definitely use them they're also beautiful as a really simple uh rings against the grain and then you can pour just a red wine um, vinegar and and water and a little trace amount of sugar and a little bit of salt that you've heated on the stove and make the fastest pickle um, and strew those beautiful sort of pink 
uh, rings of shallot over like a piece of roasted steak or uh, a pork chop or some tofu or whatever you want it to be or in a salad or on a sandwich. So they really have a ton of flexibility. Yeah. I love shallots too. And um, I think there are particular things that I love to do with them that I don't really often do with other things. They're really great for frying. They crisp up really nicely, so on and so forth. But because I'm not you and I'm not Chef Gary Danko, your former mentor, uh, I will also say to Hannah, if you have shallots instead of onions, that is perfectly fine. <laughs> Hannah, nobody's in your kitchen that you don't know, and they'll keep the secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Hugh, thanks so much for your time. I know you're super, super busy. Uh, I hope you go and write some more great uh, safety plans. Um, I'm actually, it sounds like I'm joking. I'm not joking. Uh, and, you know, I leave it to you to be a leader in this field and to show other chefs or restaurateurs um, a way to, to do this well and do this safely when we do reopen. So thanks a lot, brother. I think that's a, that's the job we got to do right now, but we're, we're happy to do it. And, you know, we're going to make out of this and we'll, we'll figure it out. And uh, my thoughts are with all the people working really hard at, uh, to figure this all out. Right on. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Francis. Hugh Atchison is the author of a whole bunch of cookbooks, from his first, the James Beard Award-winning A New Turn in the South, to his latest coming out this fall called How to Cook. You can find some of his favorite simple pickle recipes at SplendidTable.org. Well, that is our show for this week. Hey, we hope the restaurants in your area are doing as okay as possible. Order in some food from them if you can, and please keep sending us your cooking questions. Again, record them as voice memos on your phone and email them to contact at SplendidTable.org. We're working on a grilling show right now, so think about that. Thank you for listening. Take care, stay home, and be safe. We'll talk to you next week. Our show is produced by APM, American Public Media, and is supported by you. Thank you to everyone who contributes in their public radio station. We are member-supported, and we literally can't do this without you. You can listen to all of our podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get them. And please leave us a review if you like what you hear. It really helps people find us. The show comes together with the help of our team, Jenny Lupke, Jennifer Russell, Erica Romero, Chip Walton, and Sally Swift. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media. Our show is supported by Capital One. With the Capital One Saver Card, you earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on milkshakes with the kids and 4% on music with your friends. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet?